Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, no doubt you've talked and heard and spoken about the need to change and something about the coming potential disruptions to your business. And I'm sure you've heard about the risks that you need to take in your career. But if you're like most of the people that I talk to, most leaders, you're going to hesitate to take a risk, particularly when that means you're abandoning something that has made you or your success, your business successful today. So what we want to talk about today is how do you prepare for risk? What is it that makes it hard for people to take those risks to make the kind of change that we know they need to make before they're hit with a tsunami wave, for example? How do you get out of your comfort zone personally, professionally, and business-wise? So my guest today is Andy Waldeck. Andy is the global managing partner at Innosite since just this year. With over 15 years in the practice at Innosite, he's advised senior leaders in companies like Aetna, Baxter, or Covidian, which is now part of Medtronic and Walgreens. And his extensive experience across the healthcare industry includes payers, providers, medical devices, pharmaceuticals, pharmacies, health information technology. But he's not just worked in healthcare. He's also worked with a range of Fortune 500 companies across media, financial services, and consumer industries. Andy's work focuses on helping clients develop long-term growth strategies manage enterprise transformation, and build enduring and innovative capabilities and design new disruptive growth businesses. So as a frequent speaker on these topics, I think Andy is particularly well-positioned to help us understand what people are getting right and not so right as they look out in the future, recognize the kind of changes and the risks that they need to take. So Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Wanda. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. All right. I know that you're passionate about this topic about change and taking risk. Why? Why does it matter so much to you? Well, part of the reason it matters so much to me is this has been the focus of my professional career for about the last 20 years. So as you said, I've been at Insight for 15 going on uh, 20 years now. And, um, you know, I was always captivated by the work that Clay Christensen had done, the professor at the Harvard Business School who came up with the concept of disruptive innovation and the case study after case study of these just incredible organizations and why it was so hard for them when they had arguably all the capability in the world, they were the market leaders, why it was so hard for them to adequately respond to disruptive change. And so in the work that I've gotten to do with clients in multiple industries and certainly now in healthcare, I've seen this pattern over and over again. And increasingly had seen the human side of that. And so you see the impact that it has on people and their ability to either make that jump or more often than not, not make that jump. Uh, You know, we're located right down the street from Polaroid's former world headquarters, right? A classic example of disruption. And so I've, I've increasingly been motivated by the question, what does it really take not only for an organization to transform, but also for the individuals and the leaders inside of it. Because Lord knows, in an environment like ours, we need more transformation now more than ever. 
And, and I think we can do better by better understanding what are the patterns of change and how do we as organizations, how do we as leaders, how do we as humans take better advantage of them? All right. Before we launch into what it is about the human side and what it is about these market leaders, just give us a real quick recap of what you mean by disruptive innovation for anybody who doesn't know Clayton's work. (laughs) So disruptive innovation explains how industries transform over time. And the transformation at an industry level is actually a positive thing. Markets become more accessible. The products and services in those markets become of higher quality. You have greater uh, customer and consumer satisfaction. The challenge in that transformation is the organizations who were leading in one uh, context are the ones that then struggle to make that jump when the market conditions change. So I, I talked about the move from analog to digital in film and in images. And whether you talk about a Kodak or a Polaroid, these are incredible companies that have incredible capabilities. The problem is they're really good at what they do. And so in the face of market change, all of the biases exist within an organization to cause leaders to want to focus more closely on what they had done historically, which makes it harder for them to actually pivot the organization and change in ways that are needed to to make them succeed in the new environment and going forward. And so disruption is disruptive to the market leader when that market starts to change. And in absence of doing something different, the results can be quite scary. Okay. So um, Polaroid, for example, I understand, but I don't know Polaroid. I was not working with them, but my understanding is that they recognize the change were experimenting with the change, had projects ongoing with the change in the media, had all the right ideas, but just couldn't turn the crank to make it really happen. Is that your understanding also of Polaroid? That is a, that is a very consistent pattern that you see happen. Again, whether we're talking about technology, we're talking about consumer, we're talking automotive, there's this very consistent disruptive pattern, which is organizations see change coming, they will do some things in response to that change, but oftentimes not respond early enough, oftentimes not respond with the scale required in order to navigate that change. Or with the speed or with the you know, volume or so on. Now, do you have any examples of a market leader that has succeeded with disruptive change? Well, certainly when you look at the success somebody like Netflix has had or you look at Amazon, both of those are great examples. You know, Amazon has reinvented its business model time and time again. My colleagues, uh, Mark Johnson and Josh Suskowitz, in their book, Lead from the Future, talk about Amazon and other very successful disruptors. And, And what you start to see is a pattern, which is creating the context that allows an organization to think differently about a desired future state, getting out of the tyranny of the urgent to create the space in the environment to examine how much they need to change, and then following a future back approach that allows you to then assess what are the things that get in the way of being able to change today, and ultimately, it's about changing the trajectory. What can I do tomorrow that gets me on a different course than the direction that I'm heading today? Right. So that means a willingness to, one, acknowledge that the disruption is out there, 
um, some wisdom that some disruptions are more important than others and to get that judgment right, um, to get out of the urgent that you just said, so I'm not so busy running day in and day out things, and I can imagine where we need to be and then take actions that put us in a place to be in that spot. Decent summary? It is, although the one the one thing that you see time and time again is is this question around, did I, as a leader of company XYZ, did I get it right? Did mm-hmm. I accurately predict the transition mm-hmm. in a market? And the answer is universally no. People are either over-predicting, under-predicting. The, the, the issue is not, did I get the forecast right? The issue is, have I had a, the mechanism that allows me to consistently look at the future environment? Can I create the, the, the space to, to contemplate the degree of change that's required? But ultimately, this is a question about where do you put your time, effort, and your resources, right? I mean, this is the crux of Clay's research. It's a resource allocation problem. And so it's not that Blockbuster didn't see Netflix. They knew Netflix. They knew exactly what Netflix is doing. They coexisted for a dozen years. It was the fact that Blockbuster had a very successful existing business model, a reliance on late fees that made them unable to make the pivot to a subscription-based model and to replicate and copy what Blockbuster was, uh, what excuse me, what Netflix was doing. Yeah, right. And a bit of a belief that the subscription wasn't going to really last. I think there was some of that going on too, that this was not a sustainable business model. Well, well, this is what makes it challenging as a leader because you're confronted with data that lies to you, right? Kodak uh, has their professional customers are telling them the quality that they have is fantastic. I was talking to a client yesterday in the life sciences space, talking about one of their therapies and one of the challenges they were having were keeping patients compliant because of the fear of side effects. And, and that company's natural response would be to then respond by providing even better, even stronger evidence, stronger training that talks about the importance of remaining compliant with that particular therapy, because that's what they have always done. It's what their strengths are, right? As opposed to getting data that says, well, are there, are there other ways that we could then start to influence that patient? What are the blockers that they have? They have a fear about uh, side effects as opposed to the actual evidence of side effects happening. So what new approaches could I actually take to help solve that problem? And so part of the issue is the data that you have in front of you Part of it is the environment that you have, and certainly part of it is the fact that you have been successful executing on a play over history, which then creates rigidity going, going forward. This reminds me of what I see leaders do in their leadership practice. So I'm going to put it back in my language, and then I'm going to go back to the whole business about the business model and then the risks and so on you take. But as a leader, you have a certain set of strengths. And those strengths make you successful without doubt. And you're not going to stop doing those strengths because that's going to be foolhardy. At the same time, it's so easy to over-index on those strengths, to overuse them, to ignore something else that you need. And I think that's what you're saying about the business model. we got a great product, a great thing that our clients are loving, that our customers are loving, that's working in their marketplace we're going to keep doing, therefore, we push harder and harder on it without realizing that there might be other problems that need to be solved in the same space. That is correct. And it, again, it goes back to the data that you're looking at as a leader. 
So my, my colleagues uh, did work with KWM, one of the leading law firms in Australia. And their leaders were concerned about the potential disruption of the legal business. And on one hand, they said, when we look at their commentary from our largest clients, for whom we do the most demanding work, we, we, we are asked to jump through all these different hurdles, to solve really complex issues, the feedback is glowing. And so it, it's hard for us to see how our business is being disrupted because the data from our best customers tells us the exact opposite of that. What it required that team to do was to go out and gather different data, to look in places they hadn't looked before, right? Look at the bottom end, not the best customers, but look at the customers that were the hardest to serve. Look at the ones where their offerings were at the greatest risk of being commoditized. And what you could see in that segment of the market is actually a very clear decline over the past five and 10 years. That was enough to spark curiosity to examine more around the threat of disruption. And so again, as a leader, in absence of exercising the curiosity muscle to start to look at different data and look at different contexts, you increasingly are gonna get information that tells you to do nothing more than exactly what you've been doing historically. Right. Hence the right. challenge. Okay, so one of the mistakes then that you're seeing companies make is they're listening to the data they have, the good data that they have and they're not curious about the data they don't have or where else there are places that they should be looking or could be considering or problems that they're not seeing and could be solving, okay? Now, I'm sitting here, I got limited resources, I got limited time, I got limited budget. How do you convince somebody? I mean, is that the big crux for why people don't get prepared to change for in the face of disruption? Is it they're not looking at the right spot? Uh, it is certainly one of them, right? This is a game of biases. And so what are the conditions that are biasing your evaluation of how sustainable that success formula really is? And so some of it might be I'm talking to the wrong clients. I'm listening to the clients who say that I do the greatest job. I don't talk to the clients who say I do the worst job. Some of it might be I've actually not got enough experiments going on out in the market right? To test new approaches, to deploy new technology, to learn from my competitors. And so it's really an, a, an awareness of um, the, the environment that I'm in and the, the potential for bias in the data that I'm receiving. Right. Okay. Are there other things that you see that keep companies from being able to take the change, take the risks, make the change, get the data they need to see? Well, and a ton has been written about the incentives inside of large organizations, their ability to take risk, the, particularly if it's a publicly traded company, the reliance on delivering quarter over quarter results. And so that is also a very, very real part of this phenomenon, right? It is very natural and understandable when, you're, when you put yourself in the shoes of leaders like that for them to say, yes. I recognize disruption at the bottom end of my market is happening, but we're going to tackle that next year. I, I remember one of the one of the uh, my healthcare clients, uh, and this is you know probably a decade ago. Um, we engaged in long, long conversations with them and had done lots of research around the impending transition in healthcare from what you would describe as the transactional orientation, just based on the way that things are paid for in the U.S. healthcare system, to one that is more connected, one that's more integrated, one that really kind of follows the consumer along their multi-year healthcare journey. 
And I'll, I'll never forget talking with the CEO of our client. And we're both uh, strongly held beliefs on both sides of the argument <laughs> and him continuing to remind me that the data was showing very clearly that the transactional business was continuing to grow year over year. They had market leading position. There was still opportunity for them to grow and to scale. And yes, we agree that there is this move to this longitudinal consumer oriented thing. But right now I need to solve for this issue and I need to solve for that issue. So the pressing issue of time and the reality of when is the right time to plant a tree, when is the right time to, to make that bet is also a very, very real issue. Um, you know, when you, when you roll the clock forward to today, that same company is one of the companies that's leading the push towards this longitudinal consumer-oriented view. And the problem is they lost 10 years in the interim. Right. And there was a reasonable dip and there were changes. And uh, my beloved client that uh, we had long debates about these issues uh, is long since gone from that organization, <laughs> uh, which, again, is part of the motivation where I think with the right tools and right awareness, I think we can do better. OK, um, I certainly hear from people in the guts of organizations who see the trends frequently. They're on the receiving end of various clients or customers who are at the bottom and complaining about the processes or procedures or lack of resources or whatever. And they propose forward and then get rejected and they get frustrated that the senior leadership isn't seeing the need. What you're telling me is the senior leadership may be seeing the need. They're not that crazy. They just have so many other competing alternatives like time and money and quarterly results that it's hard to say, when do I pull the plug and make a real change in what we're doing? Uh, that is correct. And, and we have lots of data uh, that supports that. You know, it very frequently will assess an organization's capacity to change, right? It's okay. readiness to change and you'll survey extensively through the organization. And there's always a very, very consistent pattern. At the top of the house, people will say, yes, we recognize we need to change. Certainly will be differing opinions on the organization's ability to change, but people will recognize that there is change about. But then when you get down two and three layers below the C-suite, you see very, very different responses. And there, the pessimism around the organization's ability to change is very different than what you have at the leadership level. And when you step back from it, it makes perfect sense. The people at the top of the organization, quote unquote, have made it. Now, they may or may not want their particular position to change, but they've made it. It's easier for them to say, yes, I see the need for change and we're going to drive the need for change. It's almost exhilarating for them to say that. If I'm two or three levels down in the organization, I've been plotting. I've been working. I've been building for decades to get to this point, And I know the two things, the three things that I need to do to get from where I am now to the top. And you're telling me that you're going to change the game on me. And so, of course, you're going to have resistance, right? Of course, you're going to have people who are skeptical. Um, and that really, you know, winning the hearts and minds at that part of the organization is what becomes so important. It's also, as we talk about getting different data, that's another example of conducting experiments. So not just talking to people at your level, but actually going down and mining and understanding what are, you know, what's your broader team seeing? What's their perspective on the urgency for change, your ability as an organization to be able to capture that change, what you need to be doing different, what's getting in the way. 
All right. I think every CEO I've ever talked to or every C-suite person I've ever talked to believes that the reason you can't change is the middle layer, that the bottom of the organization is gun-ho, sees it ready to go, you know, follow along, and it's the middle layer that won't make the change. Now, they have various theories about why that middle layer won't. I happen to agree with yours. Have you found any keys to success in getting that middle layer to see? You just talked about experiments. Are there things that really work? So, uh, first off, and, and, and this is where applying the, the change tools become really important, let's recognize that I, I can't ask someone to do something different, that the system that they're in is not enabling and allowing them to do it, mm -hmm. right? And so, I have to think about how I affect the environment and then how do I enable that individual to make the change? And so as I think about the environment, that's my questions around incentives. That is where you start to really think about the systemic and the cultural blockers that get in the way. Is my inability to make the jump from a transactional model to a relationship one driven by the fact that I don't even know what it means to have a relationship model. I don't know what those skills are. I don't feel personally equipped. Or is it that I fundamentally disagree that that's actually the way the business ought to be run? Or is it that I don't believe the organization is going to resource all of the things that need to change to get beyond that? And so being able to understand what are the blockers, what are the things that are holding us back, those might be structural, those might be what we believe in, those might be a, a wide range of categories, understand what those blockers are. So that way you can start to affect and change the environment for that person, such as you give them a much better chance to actually be able to do something different. I've seen so many times the assumption that somebody who's resisting the change is because they're resisting the change, you know, their own personal agenda, their own personal progress, what, you know, a whole bunch of hypotheses related around that. When you actually sit down and talk to that person in an unbiased way, what you find, what I find more often than not, is I don't feel like I have the skills to do it. I don't know how to do it. And I don't want to fail at this point in my career. So are you really going to give me the skills to let me be successful? Do you believe, you know, if you are, then I'm going to have a different conversation. But then there's this other piece of, do you understand how many layers are in the way for me actually to affect this change that you're talking about? You know, we've got process on top of process on top of process. If you're not changing those, it's not going to go anywhere. And why would I waste my time? Uh, completely agree. And I'd, I'd add a third piece to it. So, you know, so to your first point, as you progress in your career, you progress in an organization, uh, you learn to feel... Uh, you learn to fear uh, being wrong. Mm -hmm. You learn to fear making mistakes in most organizations. Um, and so number one, that just makes this whole, a whole dynamic hard. Number two, um, you know, one of my former clients described successful organization is just having all this organizational sediment that builds up over time, right? Process on top of process that's required to perfect the existing business model make that thing run at a world-class level, and just all of that stuff gets in the way um, of, of people being able to think about, well, how might I engage with my customer differently? How might I think about delivering on a different job to be done they have, delivering a different solution? I think the other one, too, that you have to take into account is just the natural organizational pessimism that is brought about by 
previous efforts mm. that have not succeeded. And I think in many organizations, you know, it's, it's the stories that people tell in the hallways about, well, Wanda volunteered for a change effort like this a couple of years ago, and she's no longer in the organization, right? And that, that creates imprinting on the organization that, um, that has a real lasting and, and sticking effect. And so I think, I think the ability to really diagnose the, the organizational um, uh, imprinting that has happened, um, you see this a lot in organizations that were, you know, founder led for a long period of time, and they try to make the evolution to a new leadership team. You see this anytime you move geographies, anytime you move into new categories, it's kind of organizational uh, blueprinting uh, uh, and imprinting, excuse me, really has a meaningful impact. And, you know, it's not the sort of thing that people just talk about, right? It mm -hmm. takes real mm -hmm. discovery work to uncover, to know, ah, Got it. The reason why Wanda's reluctant to do this is because her two friends seven years ago tried something similar and look what happened to them. And yeah, and got their hands chopped off in some way. Yes, I think we way underestimate the ways that people feel that they have been sanctioned by the organization. Um, in one form or another, embarrassed in public, you know, called back on something, really put an effort out, pulled the carpet pull. There's a whole host of ways that this happens intentionally and unintentionally, too, that leave people to being a little cautious on trying it again. Right. Cautious on making a mistake. I Yeah, I certainly see that one. Um, I love this and concept. I, of, I, I think yeah. that's oh, sorry, but I, I think that's also particularly relevant in any organization where there's a large regulatory or compliance uh, focus. Um, and those, those parts of the organization often get, get bad raps, right? They say, well, yeah. we can't be innovative because we're in a regulated industry. Well, then when you talk with the folks who are leaders of those functions and you ask, why does this, that, and the other thing exist? In, in many cases, it's because you've got, again, this organizational sediment that is built up. And if you can talk about what we're actually trying to accomplish. What's the purpose of this particular rule? Do we need to apply it in this particular instance? Uh, we found that you can make incredible progress on being able to fire legacy rules, governing systems, et cetera, but it requires trust within the organization to be able to have those discussions. Right, right. Easier said than done. Um, I'm going to forever steal this notion of organizational sediment. I'm going to take a leap in two places. Um, one is I've always, you know, we always talk about having an organization perfectly aligned with the business model, the strategy, the skills. I mean, pick whatever model you want about alignment. But I think once you get an organization perfectly aligned, you now have it in stasis. That makes it next to impossible to move it because you move one piece of it and the others force it to wobble back into place. That's what all of those processes were about. And it's hard work to actually unpack what do we have in this bucket here that we put in for very good reasons. And some put in some others to correct some ones that were a problem. So we've layered it in and layered it in. You can't even get to what's in it some days. And so it's easy to just throw your hands up and say, I give up. Um, my other leap I'm going to make is there's an increasing commentary in the news media in the U.S. And we're seeing it. We've seen it first in Asian market as well about quiet quitting. New phrase that just appears in the search lexicon as of August of 2022. 
And the notion that I'm not going to go that extra mile anymore. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to do a reasonable job, but I'm not going to go that extra mile. Um, and I think one of the reasons that driving the quiet quitting movement is the frustration with the organizational sentiment. I just can't sure. get through it. So why am I pushing so hard? And I have, uh, you know, as somebody who's been doing this for almost two decades now, I've, I've worked with dozens and dozens and dozens of quiet quitters, right? It's, it's the silent majority inside of the organization that says, yes, boss, I hear you. You're saying we need to change, and, and I know it. But because of the environment, because of what I've seen previously, because of this, because of that, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, but I'm not going to lean into the change. I'm not going to lean away from it either. I'm just going to sit in my quiet quitting <laughs> position. And that ultimately, I think, is the challenge for leaders to really get organizations at scale, to be able to pivot and move as the glorious PowerPoint suggests and want them to. That really is the challenge, right? How do you win the hearts and minds of what we would call today the quiet quitters? Okay. All right, Andy, on that note, it's a perfect moment to take a break because when we come back from break, what I want to focus on is how, you know, give me an example of somebody who has done this. What does it really take to win the hearts and minds, clear out the organizational sentiment, get rid of the pessimism and actually move forward in a way you know you need to? My guest today, Andy Waldeck, Global Managing Partner at Innosight works a lot in the healthcare industry, but also across a whole range of other companies. And we'll be right back after the break. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. 
Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Andy Waldeck. As I said, Andy is the Global Managing Partner at Innocite. Deep experience in the health uh, care industry, as well as in other industries, particularly around this notion of disruptive innovation. The concept coming from Clayton Christensen is that market leaders in an industry can be slow to respond to a coming change. They see the change and they know the change. They're aware of the change. They just don't take advantage of it and capitalize it until they begin to lose their position. Part of Andy's argument is one of the reasons they don't do that is that they're looking at the wrong set of data. They're looking at data from their best clients who are very happy with the progress and the results that they're giving them. They're not looking at the bottom clients that are dissatisfied, or they're not looking at the problems that are being solved by somebody else, or they're not willing to take a risk on the financial quarter over quarter returns or there's all of this organizational sediment that makes it hard for people actually doing the change to really have an impact. I hope, Andy, I did a good job of summarizing 10 years of research in about 30 seconds there. So what I'd like to do, we were just, Andy and I were also just talking about the organizational culture and why it is so hard for people in the middle of the organization to get on board, to be convinced of the uh, need for change. And we've highlighted things that are obvious, like the incentive system is stacked in the wrong direction. People before them who've made change have not succeeded, so they're hesitant to fail at this point in their career. Um, the higher you get, the less you want to fail. So, you know, you're, you're working hard to protect your next step. You know how to do the job you're currently doing. You have the skills for it. You don't necessarily have the skills for something else. And the layers of processes, the organizational sediment that exists in the organization is stacked to make sure that we deliver on the old business model. And unless you tackle all of that sediment and processes, you make it virtually impossible for someone in the middle of the organization to really do what it is you're asking them if they're convinced it's worthwhile. So what I want to do is to move from the ideas about why people don't change, take risks, and move and Andy, get an example. And what I'm looking for is an example of a client that um, faced a disruptive innovation and found a way to win hearts and minds in the order, in the middle of the organization so we can actually understand what the process looks like. Great. Uh, so we had the pleasure uh, a number of years ago of working with the senior leadership team at Aetna and in particular, their CEO, uh, Mark Bertolini. And uh, we, we co-authored an article together called Knowing When to Reinvent, which was uh, examining this exact question of how is it that you can look at the right data, make the leadership decision, and when is the right time to start to shift and change an organization? And in the context of Aetna, you're talking about a 150-year-old company uh, who had been in the healthcare insurance business for almost 100 years of that number two player in their market. And their leader, the soon after becoming CEO, says the classic health insurance model, as we've defined it, is dead. Because what's happening is uh, healthcare is changing to become a consumer-oriented industry. Technology is going to change the way that healthcare is accessed, and importantly, how healthcare is financed. 
uh, and really uh, kind of set the the industry on its edge with with his vision and perspective. And today, Aetna is a, is a very, very different company. Aetna is now part of CBS, still one of the leading players in the health insurance business, but very far down the line of trying to progress a vision towards consumer-driven, uh, consumer-oriented healthcare. And, and so the question is, you know, how did, how did that happen at Aetna? And part of it was driven by the choices that business made, and part of it was also driven by the leader himself. Mark's personal transformation story has been well-documented. He's published a book on it. Mark experienced a series of, of, of significant tragedies, a skiing accident that left him partially paralyzed, uh, one of his family members uh, navigating through a very, very challenging, uh, almost life-threatening illness. And, and that experience really helped Mark to crystallize his vision of how healthcare needed to change, stimulated the demand as, as he experimented with acupuncture, yoga, all these non-traditional therapies to help manage his chronic pain. I mean, it's an incredibly inspiring story. And so in that case, you know, you, you have a leader enabled and equipped like that. But then as an organization, what Aetna did was then work through to say, let's develop a view of what we think healthcare is going to look like in the future, knowing full well that that picture is wrong but let's get aligned on what we think the fundamental assumptions are and the conditions that are going to lead the business to evolve from what historically has been a wholesale business. Insurance is sold. It's a business to business industry sold to employers navigated through the government. It's not very consumer directed as a product to one that today starts to look very different. So let's get aligned on a view of the future. Then let's talk about the role that we as an organization want to play in that future state. And now I can start to do a compare and contrast for how different is that business in the future than the business that I have today? How resilient is my current business model? How sustainable is that? And, and what are the blockers? What are the things that are going to inhibit our progress from getting from today to that future state, which then allows you to then plan quite pragmatically around how do you want to shift resources? Because in the case of Aetna, Aetna still exists and is an incredibly successful business in and of itself. But it looks very different now than it did 10 years ago because it's part of this much larger organization focused on a true consumer orientation of health. So the ability to think future back, clarity on what the future looks like, recognizing that's an imperfect exercise, but it's an alignment tool and it creates the flexibility in the space for leaders to imagine a very different future. And then you can start to have debates around how fast do I want to go from the, or do I need to go from the current state to the future state? And, and what are the big roadblocks? What are the big blockers that are going to get in the way of us being able to make that transition? Okay. All right. You know, I can imagine that the CEO's personal story becomes a very compelling story to get people hooked on why the need for change, because that's a, that's a very emotional story, and that's often helpful. But not all industries end up with some emotional and charismatic storyteller who can say, here's what we need to do, and here's why we need to do it. Um, is there anything on that story that they use to get people bought in to the future state? To well, believe that, that this was a future was state? Yeah, that story was certainly, you know, deeply motivating for Mark as an individual and certainly inspired his, his actions. But that's, that's not 
sufficient to drive a market leading company, <laughs> right? And so we, you know, we we talk about uh, you know having the right case for change, etc. It really does require creating the environment and the conditions where leaders really can think about a a future that looks different than today. Uh, look at global automotive and the move from combustion engine to electrification, right? And if I'm in the day-to-day of product planning for whatever the current model is, I- I'm, I'm never going to have the space and the time to actually think about how in the next 10 years, the auto industry has changed as much as it has in the last five that we've seen. So, so, so much of this is around setting the context, creating the right environment that allow people to be able to think openly about how things might actually look different than what they experience in the day in, day out reality. You know, we used to, years ago, decades ago, run executive education programs that encourage people to, in the course of that program, think about a future state. Today, not very many people are taking their leaders out of the business for even three days, let alone a week or longer, to think about the future state. So what you're saying is we have to create some space for people to begin to say, what what does this mean? What could it look like? And what would I need to be doing in my job differently? And, and this is why, ultimately, it's a resource allocation problem. Right. So everybody has the capability to think differently and to imagine different futures, all the things we just talked about. But I can't do it in the 30 minutes that I have between one one hour Zoom and the next one hour Teams meeting. Right. It's an investment by the organization in time, effort and energy in order to create the right environment to actually be able to think in a future back way. And that is one of the biggest issues that gets in the way of organizations where I see change is coming. We might have different perspectives on when exactly that's going to hit, but we all can see it coming. But the tyranny of the focus on delivering against an incredibly successful business in the here and now, and look at, you know, if you, if you run any of the health systems across the U.S. today, right, you have no shortage of incredibly challenging issues, labor challenges, quality challenges, you're dealing with burnout across the board, You've got questions around major technology upgrades. The, the drive for greater quality and affordability never ends. And it's, it's almost impossible for those leaders to be able to think about, well, how could we look different three and five years from now because of the pressure of today? And so part of this exercise is about finding the ability to hit stop, take some time away, create the space that allows people to start to imagine what some of this could look like in the future. Right. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes we're too dependent on a senior leader to have that vision and come back and tell us. And then we spend hours resisting it as opposed to actually engaging with it. Um, Or it's like, that's great. I get that. Tell me what you want to do differently when you figure it out right now. I've got to go run the processes. This reminds me, uh, Marshall Goldsmith's, you know, famous line, uh, our book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. I remember asking Marshall years ago um, when his coaching practice was, I either am successful in changing a leader and you pay me a lot of money, or I'm not successful and you don't pay me anything. Very clever model, I thought. And I said, Marshall, since your livelihood is dependent on people actually changing, what's the difference between the ones who change and the ones who don't? And he gave me a one-line answer with a very straight face. And he said, 
the ones who can lift their head up from the day-to-day will make the change. The ones who can't get their head out of the day-to-day never will make the change. And it's the same story here, the business level as well as the individual level. It, 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 exactly. I mean, think of any of your own personal experiences where you're trying to do something different. Learn a new hobby, get involved in a different organization. For me, it's the, it's the never-ending question, uh, quest to, to, to manage my weight and to exercise and all those things. And ultimately, it's, and it doesn't just boil down, but one of the big issues is just can you create the ability to lift your head above the proverbial water? Um, and, and, and to recognize that part of what makes it hard to lift our head is this is hard work. It can be scary, right? You're, 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 you're asking me to do something that's very different than what I've done before. And so my own perceptions of taking risk, my personal tolerance with failure, the ability to fall down and get back up again and, and the ability to navigate that it's, it's incredibly hard work. Um, and so that's also what's important to recognize in any of these efforts. Okay. All right. Um, when you're working in Aetna or anywhere with this lovely middle that we've taught, we've been talking about who are, you know, in the day-to-day, kind of the tyranny of the urgent fires at that moment in time and can't really take their eye off the ball. Do you see any tactics? So, yes, they need the time and space, but are there any other tactics that help win hearts and minds? Uh, This is very much a game of being able to demonstrate proof points. Okay. And, and, And those proof points do not have to be enormous. They do not have to be substantial, but they have to be clear and you have to achieve them. Right. So we we will often talk about in the early days, um, you know, creating the most biased test that you possibly can. So you increase the likelihood that you're actually successful in achieving it because you're not going to change an organization overnight. You're not personally going to change overnight, but it is the equivalent of, okay, what are the what are the 10,000 steps that I'm going to take tomorrow to get me on a path towards better health? And and people uh, react. Uh, quite positively to having a clear set of milestones that we're going to drive towards experiments that demonstrate progress against that. It's about breaking it down and making it feel more tactical and manageable and the ability to measure progress and course correct along the way. And so the way you fight skepticism is not trying to tell a skeptic to stop being skeptical. It's about creating new data. Right. And doing it together, letting them experience the data, wrestle with the challenge of doing something different, but then also rewarding the success that they see, even if it's even if it's relatively small. Again, it's about changing the trajectory. Right. I think about a podcast I did many, many years ago with a guy who learned to do a hundred foot dive. You know, one of the people that jumps off the diving board into this little teeny tiny pool. And when he started on this mission that he decided he was going to do he was terrified of heights. So you have to say, how on earth do you get yourself to achieve this goal when you're afraid of heights? And he says, it's the same process you're saying. Oh, I started with a one foot diving board, one foot off the water and two feet, and then 
10 feet and then 15 feet. And then my coach had a diving board that you could just crank up. So we just kept cranking it up until I got comfortable and you get to a level where you're comfortable and then you push the boundary a little bit more. You're saying the same thing here. It's a process. And I want to have a step-by-step milestone process where I have success, I get comfortable with it, and then I go to the next and the next and the next. Yeah, I'll I'll never forget uh, working with one of our healthcare clients, and and they too were making this transition towards a more consumer-oriented strategy and approach. And and that first step was we said, well, we're just going to go talk to five people. And we're going to talk about their day in, day out experience of consuming healthcare. And in the question we were talking about was specifically metrics. How does someone measure their health? And, and there are no shortage of metrics that, uh, the healthcare system uses to evaluate. And those are all, uh, all terrific. But, but well, how does the consumer think about their health? So we had a conversation with five, uh, different participants of varying health status. And one of the people in that group, um, had some, some, some facial disfiguration uh, driven by a, a quite serious condition that she was living with. Um, and you could see she had some mobility issues walking. And so we go around the room and people are talking about how do they measure their health and they measure it by their activity with their children, the strength of the relationship with their loved ones, all different sort of very human things. And then we, we get to the, to the last person and, and, and she described her metric around health as, you know, I measure the happiness that I experience on a day in day out basis. And I cherish the reality that I have. And while I know that I have a limited time left because of what I'm navigating, I measure it by the time I spend with my friends, the quality of the conversation. It just, it, it tears at your heart when you hear it. But that was the one demonstrated piece of evidence that that organization then talked about for the next year that fueled their entire investment strategy around investing in digital technology, changing certain ways that they operated to be more consumer uh, oriented. And so it is about finding small tests and new data that builds confidence and helps to tell you whether or not you're heading down the right path. Well, I also highlight once again, the power of a good story that people remember, retell, think about. They use that as a thinking point to start imagining what a different model and future might be like. I think that's really fascinating. All right, Andy, completely unfairly, I'm going to shift the game on you because I can't resist to talk about your sitting as a global managing partner. You see people coming and going, trying to advance their careers, succeeding and not succeeding. When you think about careers, is it any different in terms of taking risks and getting out of your comfort zone and imagining different roles and different possibilities? Uh, I, I think the, the tremendous amount of this applies. I, I do think the, the reality when you think about personal uh, change is, is there's, there's a little bit more responsibility on the individual. If I'm in an organization, I have no shortage of outside forces that, dem- that tell me on a daily basis, am I doing a good job, a bad job, or something in between. For, for individuals, I think it's a little bit harder. And particularly in our current hybrid environment, I think you can be even more isolated and I think it really stresses um, kind of two inter- interdependent values. The, the first one is curiosity, mm-hmm. right? The curiosity to continue to stretch, even as you have success in, in different endeavors, the curiosity to want to learn more. And, and, and connected to that is the humility 
to recognize that learning is important. Um, and that's hard. As you have success and you become more accomplished, it's easy to, to follow past routines. And, and those are great. And that's an important source of success. But it is the continued reminder to exercise the curiosity and the humility muscles in tandem um, as a way to be gathering the data and exploring uh, new opportunities um, that also becomes, I think, a really essential part in kind of crafting your own change journey and giving you the insight around uh, what new opportunities might lie ahead. Yeah. We could spend another 45 minutes talking about this one, I think. How do you get yourself out of the comfort zone? The one thing I will emphasize is as your career is progressing, there is no choice but to get yourself out of the comfort zone because that's where the learning (laughs) curves. So curiosity, imagining a different future state, doing some milestones, doing some experiments, getting some different data, all of those are the pieces that are going to help you move forward. All right, Andy, one and a half minutes. What takes you out of your comfort zone? Well, uh, doing, uh, doing things like this, um, <laughs> <laughs> sitting and talking with friends, have them ask good questions. I find a really, really helpful way to challenge some of the things I've been thinking about to really test. Uh, are, you, are you clear on some of these and expose yourself to new horizons? And so I've always found it uh, fun, but also incredibly informative to participate in podcasts, do speeches, attend different conferences. Those are all shortcuts just to create exposure to new conditions, new environments. Um, I will say it's hard. Uh, we all struggle with our own personal resource allocation. As we get older, our lives, in theory, get more complicated. Uh, they feel like they're more demanding. But finding venues um, that just create exposure um, to different sorts of uh, uh, topics, people, environments, et cetera, I think are all really uh, important mechanisms. Andy, thank you. I love that. Um, continuing to, is, I, I'm going to come back to a phrase you've used multiple times. It's a resource allocation problem. Am I going to spend time and effort thinking about it, being curious about it, trying to try some experiments? And I think the things that remind me again are the importance of the milestone steps along the way so that I can see that there's a path. I've got one experiment to try. I can have success. I can go to the next and so on. Plus that willingness to create space to imagine a different future state. And I think those are just the real standout pieces that are what I'm taking away from the conversation. So my guest today, Andy Waldeck, Global Managing Partner at Innosite, working obviously extensively in the healthcare industry, but in other places as well, focused on innovative capabilities and dealing with disruptive growth businesses. Andy, if people want to get in touch with you, how should they find you? Uh, they can shoot me an email at awalbeck at innocite.com. Okay, fabulous. Andy, thank you. And join us next Thanks, week for, for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. If you like this episode, please like us on your favorite podcast server and check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.